0: Well, y'all can be seated. Good morning. Good morning. I, um, gosh, I still got the cough. Is anybody dealing with coughing a lot still? Like, uh, it's bad. Like at nighttime. Uh, yeah, it's right before, it's that perfect time of like right when your head hits the window, then you feel like a lung might need to exit your body. So um, bear with us, you'll, you'll, you'll be good. Um, and then, uh, but I, I wanted to say uh, welcome to y'all this morning. So uh, yeah, most of y'all know me at this point, but my name is Ryan, Community Outreach Pastor uh, here at Grace, and I'm really excited to be here this morning. We're continuing the, uh, we're, we're continuing the, survey, the, the um, series on Heaven and Hell and uh, for those of you who follow uh, Matt Morton, our teaching pastor, for those of you who follow him on Instagram or Facebook, uh, you probably realize that he is uh, away on an anniversary trip with his lovely bride. Although if you follow him on Facebook and Instagram, I know that he's there in Nashville. I also know that there's a toy taco with him in Nashville. I'm not entirely sure if his bride is with him, but I'm, uh, I have some confidence that she's there as well. But we're really excited to, uh, you'll have to check it out. It's, uh, he's, he's really funny, him and that taco. Um, so what you'll, um, that, but we're, we're, um, we're happy for them. We're excited that their marriage is getting to be rejuvenated and they're getting to celebrate all the Lord has done. I, I would encourage y'all, for those of you who didn't come last week, uh, Matt spent some time answering a, a, a really um, important question that we all face, which is, uh, what happens uh, after we die, and so Matt did an amazing job leading us through that. If that's something you missed out on, I would encourage you all to uh, to look it up. It's on YouTube, or you can look it up on Grace's uh, website, but it's a great, great, great uh, sermon. But we're continuing uh, this morning with ser- the series in Heaven and Hell, and there's a question that is actually really important to me that I started stewing over uh, a few years ago, but essentially, Heaven and Hell, um, and the question is, why on earth is heaven important? So maybe another way to put it is, what is my understanding of heaven, this? place that seems to be far off in, in distance and in time, what relevance does that have to my life here and now? What hope do I have right here and right now based on my belief in heaven? Uh, and as I thought about this, I'm just kind of thinking through how would my life be different? So let's say hypothetically that I was heretic and I didn't believe in a heaven and hell uh, right now. What would my day-to-day life look or how would it look differently? And, and I don't know for many of us if it would look that much different because, again, And it's such a far-off place and a far-off time that we really have a hard time to uh, place it in our immediate reality, this really became important to me when uh, I participated in a ministry uh, called Youth Impact, and many of y'all have heard me talk about it. But Youth Impact is a ministry to predominantly low-income children and youth. And so, what we would do in Youth Impact is we would uh, we would go out once a week, and we would provide a program almost like a VBS, where we would share the gospel, and we would do you know silly skits, and we'd play with kids on the playground, and do crafts, and all that good stuff. And it was a great, great time. Um, and, but the kids would like, I mean, they're young, so they would interact with the gospel and be like, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. But as the kids got older, especially the kids that I, uh, had a, a pretty solid relationship with, as they got older, obviously they start to ask questions differently. And also what I noticed was that as I presented the gospel to them, it seemed like something was missing. Like they bought into the premises of, uh, you know, so we, we talk about how, okay, the great news is that um uh, that god loves you and wants to have this beautiful and rich relationship with you the creator of the universe knows you and wants to be close to you but because of the things that you have done which we call sin um, you have chosen to make the creator god an enemy and you've been separated from him but if you you know the good news the great solution is that jesus came and while we were sinners while we were enemies of god you know Christ died for us, and so if you believe in this, if you trust in this, then one day you 'll be back together with god and uh, and live an everlasting life and and so that was what i mean week in week out that 's what we presented that 's what we presented that 's what we presented. but as I mentioned, I noticed that there was just something missing like they bought into all of those things. But it just didn't, it wasn't compelling or it wasn't transformative. I don't know. So, what I did was I started to kind of reflect and I started to think through what could be going on because the gospel is like the key to life. It's like everything hinges on this what's happening. So I started to discover, though, um, that uh, I actually brought a lot of my assumptions about life to bear on the gospel. So even as I presented the gospel, there were a bunch of assumptions that I was coming from that my students weren't coming from. So for instance, I grew up in a middle-class environment, and I am currently, I reside comfortably in a middle-class environment. And so the reason I bring that up is I have been wired to think about my future constantly. I was 22 years old and broke. I was struggling to sell insurance, not my bag, but I tried and tried and tried to sell insurance, but I couldn't do it. Even then, even being broke, I was being pressured to think about, okay, what's my retirement plan? Am I going to do a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA? What's my savings account going to look like? How am I going to use it? What's my life insurance situation? Do I do term life or universal life? Or what is it going to be? But how am I going to plan my life to mitigate what's going to happen ultimately whenever I retire or whenever I die? So what ways can I plan for the future? And that's a great thing. But that's not the reality of, I would argue, most people in the world. And so what I was confronted with was as I was presenting the gospel to um, a people who didn't necessarily know where they were going to spend tomorrow. They didn't know if there was going to be food on the table tomorrow. They didn't know if their lights were going to be cut out tomorrow. There was so much about just tomorrow that they had no idea about. So here I come talking about a gospel that one day God's going to make everything good. And I don't say anything about the present situation That's great that heaven's going to be wonderful, but I'm hungry right now. And so I realized a lot of ways that I had failed to, um, as well, I, I presented everlasting life, which I should, but in a lot of ways I failed to communicate the hope that we have in the gospel right here and right now. In fact, many of us, as we think about heaven, we kind of slide on one of two areas. When we think about heaven, one is we think of it, as I mentioned, is this far off place in distance and in time that one day, I don't know, something about golden roads and Jesus is going to be light and there's no tears in, uh, in heaven, as Eric Clapton said. And so maybe there's, um, that's, that's what it's going to look like, or you're on the other side of Where, uh, and this is maybe a little bit more in the 90s and early 2000s, where it's like, oh my gosh, heaven is this, uh, and the end times in general is almost this like superstitious figure it out situation where I want to look at the book of Revelation and Daniel and Isaiah and Jude and all these different aspects of what the end times are going to look like, and I want to figure them out. And as soon as I have them figured out, well, then I get to share with all my friends about how uh, how amazing I am at knowing the Bible. And they're going to gather around me and just get wisdom from me and want to hear all about my opinions on the end times. Okay, so that's, that's kind of a lot of times what our perspective is on heaven and on the end times. What I'm going to propose is uh, there's actually a lot of ways in which what we believe about heaven actually has a lot of bearing on the lives that we're called to live into in the right here and right now. So the first one is that heaven de- defines our present identity. So we know from Paul, he, um, he has this amazing verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, where he says, look, if anyone is in Christ, behold, he almost like shouts it, behold, new creation. He's declaring that that work that started when Christ was raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of the Father, that same work, Work is happening in you right now. And although we won't realize it fully until Christ comes back, the fact is that it has begun. You are part of a new creation process. Your identity has been transformed. He says elsewhere, that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life. And so a new identity has been placed upon us. Philippians 3, (coughs) excuse me, 20 and 21 has this amazing verse. It says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself, My goodness, why couldn't the Greeks learn how to use punctuation? That is a mess of a uh of a sentence. So I'm gonna cliffs notes it, and by cliffs notes I mean make it longer real fast. So um when we read about this, there's a couple of things that are going on. One is he it's important for Paul to establish you when you trust in Christ, you are now new citizens. That means that your citizenship in heaven trumps every other allegiance that you have in this world. It trumps your citizenship as a Texan, which I know I'm treading lightly here. It trumps your uh, allegiance as a Texan, even as a husband and even as a child. So your allegiance first and foremost is to uh, the Savior and we wait, uh, we wait for him. And then he says, uh, Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So in other words, this body, which is hypothetically balding and weaker and um, and sort of shrinking uh, and all the other things that comes with aging, this body which is slowly seeing decay will be renewed and will be reborn. And nobody else has the power to do that, but the Lord Jesus, who we wait for. So what he's talking about here is. I know we're going to do the history lesson. All right. So um, in, in these times when the New Testament was written, the Roman empire was, um, I mean, this amazing, expansive empire. And they ruled all over. They went through and they're like, oh, where'd the Greeks rule? Okay, we'll take over that place too. And so they were constantly building and growing and building and growing and conquering. And so what they would do is the Romans, they would come into a new city like Philippi. They would come into a new city and they would uh, conquer them. And instead of moving them, exporting them back to Rome because they've conquered these new people. Instead of doing that, what they did was they gave them Roman citizenship. They were like, okay, you're Roman now, and that's the best way for them to promote allegiance to the king. But you have to do two things. If you're a Roman citizen, one, you have to acknowledge, you can worship gods, you can worship whatever gods you have, Israel, you can worship Yahweh, wonderful. Um, But you have to honor and respect Rome's gods above all others. Secondly, you have to honor and respect the fact that Caesar, the emperor of Rome, is a god. So what was customary during these times is uh, the king, after he would conquer a new city like Philippi, is he, would, he would go through and he would look at this new land that he's just acquired and the people would come out into the streets and somebody would usually go in front of him and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here, and the, which meant A new kingdom has just started, and Caesar represents the kingdom of heaven. He's here. Get ready. Life is going to be a lot different now. And so what Paul is saying, he kind of has a slide against that. He says, look, when we go out in the streets and we wait for somebody to victorious walk down the middle because he's conquered, we're looking at the Lord of lords and the king of kings. We are watching not Caesar go by. We're looking right past Caesar, and we're looking at Christ Jesus, our king. This Christ Jesus is a king who's going to bring about the, he's going to rule over when his kingdom is fully realized. He'll rule over sin and death and violence and struggle and heartache and all of these things. He'll rule over those things. What the Roman empire did was they ruled because of those things. They ruled by those things. And so Paul is saying, church, if you're a citizen of heaven, that means you look right past them. So um, the issue, I think the question that's before us all is who is our allegiance to? So we're sitting in a church on Sunday morning. Obviously, we know the Sunday school answer, which is, who's our allegiance to? You can say it. Jesus. Starts with a J, ends with the S. Jesus. Right. So uh, that's who our allegiance is to. We know to say that. We've been trained to say that, right? And, and we believe that. Absolutely. But here's the thing. In the daily nitty gritty, we're going to find that we dip our feet into different allegiances, right? Because the world is more complicated than the Bible, Okay, so what that looks like is, I'm going to help us kind of tease this out. When we find ourselves becoming the type of people that's willing to defend the indefensible, we have to start questioning where our allegiance is lying. So I'm going to give an example that we all know because it's relevant because we all know it is, so um, I'm perplexed, I'm really perplexed at why all of us, myself included, When we're thinking about the political conversation that's going on, why, church, do we either have to say Donald Trump says terrible, terrible things, or our economy is doing really well under him? Why do we have to choose either one of those allegiances? The reality is is that they both exist, but we, as the church, for crying out loud, we stand with our allegiance rooted firmly in heaven, and we proclaim truth. No matter what the power is, we proclaim the truth. Why can't we be the type of people that says, you know what, the media absolutely spins things. And you know what, the media also uncovers some really amazing things. But the reality is, is the world has started to set these allegiances for us to kind of choose a side. And my goodness, church, we don't get to do that. We are people of the truth and of the way and of the life. And we will always, we have always, and we will always speak truth to power in love. It's in our DNA. So for us to realize our heavenly citizenship is to be the type of people that would uh, find that our allegiance is in the right spot, that is with Christ Jesus, who will one day restore our decaying bodies and world. Another reason or another way that heaven has a current, uh, a current uh, relevance to our reality is that it gives us a vision of for our present calling. So what's always been confusing to me is, as as I think, as as I've thought about heaven, I think about it as being, as I mentioned, this faraway place. Um, But if if the most important thing about heaven is that God resides there, and it's this faraway place, and I wonder if there's ways in which I've said that God resides in heaven in this faraway place. And yeah, he comes back here and there to perform miracles and listen to our prayers and stuff. But the reality is, is that heaven and earth actually has a lot of overlap. And we're going we're gonna to learn about this in the series. There's a lot of overlap that we see. So in the garden, when, uh, when God walked with Adam and Eve, that was a heavenly situation. There was no sin in the world. That was what heaven is like. When Jesus, very God, came and dwelt among us, that was a heaven and earth overlap. When we pray when we worship with one another, there's an overlap of heaven and earth. We get these beautiful glimpses of heaven. What happens in Matthew 6 is that Jesus says, I'm going to teach y'all how to pray. And we all know this prayer. He says, "Um, our Father who is in heaven, (coughs) hallowed, holy is your name. Lord, please bring your kingdom, your kingdom come. Please, Lord, make your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What that means is that make this earth, and so far as it can right now, make this earth, make the, make the earth reflect the reality that we see in heaven So we, as followers of Christ, we pray toward that end. We pray that the will of God would be done on earth, right? Uh, We advocate for that. And yes, sometimes even give our life for it. So our present calling to provide congruence between what it looks like in heaven and what it looks like presently is, one, we strive for love. Now, I want to say this is by no means an exhaustive list. I mean, the reality is is that our understanding of heaven affects everything, all aspects of who we are. But um, one of them is that we strive for love. So think about the, the, uh, the, the worldly understanding of love. Highly, highly conditional, right? And I know there's people that aren't believers in Christ that can love faithfully. And, and, and I, I, I know that to be true. They're made in the image of God. But in general, the worldly assumptions of what love is, is highly conditional, right? So I will love you as long as I have love to give, I will love you as long as it feels good. I'll love you as long as you don't really infringe on me too much. I'll love you as long as you're not socially awkward. I'll love you as long as you're not a leech on me. Um, I will love you as long as, uh, you know, we can sit around a Thanksgiving table and talk about things that don't make us angry, Um, or, or even I love you even if you didn't ask for my forgiveness. These are kind of stipulations that the world sets up for us, right? Um, but what do we read about in the scriptures? What does a heavenly-based love look like? Well, we read about it in, uh, in the Beatitudes. We hear Luke talk about how um, love causes us to be the type of people that gives to everyone who asks and not demand it back. It means that we exude the type of generosity that's fueled by love, which says, I will give and give and give and give. Matthew tells us, you know, Jesus is like, okay, guys, that's great that you love uh, your friends. I mean, it's not great because everybody can do that, but um, I'm actually calling you not just to love your friends, but to love your enemies as well. Paul picks this up later in Romans 12 when he says, pray for those who persecute you. He calls us into this radical love of our enemies. What in the world is that all about? And of course, the greatest expression of heavenly love is seen in Jesus who went all the way to show love for his enemies, he subjected himself to the cross, disgraceful on so many different levels because he wanted us who were formerly enemies to be drawn into right relationship with him. And not only did he do that, I'll say this time and time again, not only did he do that, but he calls us into the same type of love where we would be willing to sacrifice to give all the way and that's the type of love that's grounded in, uh, in, in our heavenly reality. And next thing is uh, strive for justice. Um, so I know that justice carries a little bit of baggage, uh, the word uh, nowadays. And so let me just tell you what I mean as it's grounded in, uh, as it's grounded in uh, our, our ideology or our, our idea of heaven. Excuse me. Um, one is... <clears throat> So uh, I uh, picture Revelation 7. Many of us use this. This is like a token multicultural church uh, passage. But let me read it real fast. In Revelation 7, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb what is happening there is gives us an image for what justice looks like it's everybody is there everybody is worshiping under one king they're united and they are equal so what that means is that you have um, pakistani people next to indians who traditionally don't enjoy one another to say the least you have rwandans and ugandas before the Throne, you have us and our annoying neighbor, possibly if they trust Christ, um, standing in front of the throne, worshiping together. Uh, it means that um, it means that we have a vision for that, and we orient our lives right now to where we 're moving toward that. It causes me to reach out to the people that i wouldn 't ordinarily reach out to because I have a vision of what the throne is going to look like and what worship is going to look like, and I know until that happens there 's just kind of something missing in the meantime. Another image that we have is really uh, powerful. It's in, uh, it's in Isaiah 11. So if, you, um, if any of you are brave enough to take up a, a, a quick reading through the book of Isaiah, you'll find many, many, many glimpses into what uh, we picture whenever uh, the Messiah rules on earth. He says this in I- Isaiah 11:6. He says, uh, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. Um, Now, vegetarians in the room are going to be like, see, I told you, that's not... At always getting at, I, please Lord, no. But um, what he's saying is, um, what he's saying is that God will orient the new heaven and the new earth to be such a way that unity is experienced and is expressed in the human um, in the human arena, but then also even in the animal kingdom. So much so that a lion will no longer crave meat, and uh, there won't be predator and prey, oppressor and oppressed. All of them will be together. There will be the type of unity that exists that couldn't exist outside of the kingdom of God. And that's what we're called into. We strive for those things, we advocate for those things, and we live those things out, the type of love um, that is also just. Uh, The final thing—sorry, I'm getting a little jumpy with the Um, clicker—the final thing is uh, of our our present calling is that it should give us a fervor of evangelism. I feel like this is kind of an easy win. I'm in an evangelical church, of course, as we talk about heaven, we need to talk about evangelism, right? It makes sense. Um, And so, What I'm going to propose is just, could we learn to, as we introduce people into um, everlasting life, could we also learn the skills of communicating, what is my present hope because of the gospel? I mentioned earlier that I sold insurance, and, uh, you know, I'm— one of the greatest salesmen in the world. I love making friends. I made lots of friends, did not make many sales, um, and, and friends don't put food on the table, it turns out. So um, what I, I went to a sales seminar, and it was amazing. So, um, and then after about a day, then I became a little bit unnerved, because this is what they said in, 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 the, in the biz. They said, okay, when you meet with a potential client, you, uh, you take a genuine interest in them. Uh, this isn't a ploy. This isn't, a, this isn't uh, hey, I I've got an agenda. It's like, take an interest in them. Get to know them. I'm like, boom, check. I can do that. I can build trust. Got it. Um, And also, on some level, you're going to present some really good news to them. You know what? Um, Ms. Smith, I see that you love your family, and you want to leave a wonderful, amazing legacy with them. And you don't want to be a burden on them when you pass away. And, but then the bad news kicks in uh, is that the reality is that nursing homes cost $6,000 a month. And right now you're, um, you're going to be depleted. Your inheritance is going to be drained and your family may end up having to buy this burden or, or, or share this burden. You don't want that, right? Well, well here's the great solution is that I, I have a few policies for you to look at that's gonna help you out and to, to mitigate these expenses and allow you to have a great inheritance that you're passing off. And at the end of that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's every gospel training I've ever been a part of Every gospel training i 've been a part of, because what we 're doing is we 're orienting people toward the future, and we 're telling them there's great news and there 's bad news and there 's good solution, and then this is the everlasting love that is going to happen afterward and uh, so I was a little bit haunted by that to be honest um, that, that there was that much uh, overlap, I guess, but I, I get it um, because I want to say from the beginning from the get go all of those truths the, the the bad news, the good news, the great solution, and live with jesus forever that 's absolutely true. I will die hopefully if the spirit fills me, I I would die for those truths. Those are absolutely crucial. Um, But what I want us to do is I want us to learn to incorporate a little bit of hope. What happens to the fact that maybe we believe the gospel because it's true? See, we've made it about where we're going to go one day that we can one day see grandma when we get into heaven. But the reality is it's true. Believe it because it's true. What about the fact that we believe in the gospel because I am chained to materialism or to addiction or to anger or to bitterness? I am chained, I am enslaved to these things and it's only through the gospel that I can be released from these chains. What about the fact that if I believe in the gospel, the power that raised Christ from the dead also now resides in me? And so now I actually have the power to overcome the burdens that I carry with me. What if I believe in the gospel and put my faith and trust in Christ and in doing so, I'm called into a community of other people that are also sharing the burden with me? And what if that community is meant to live in the world that we constantly, because of the way that we love one another and treat one another, we're constantly reminding the world that God has not abandoned it. That Those are the present hope that we have in the gospel right now. That's why when I think about the future heaven in this seemingly far off place in this far off time, I have a present hope that's grounded in it. So here's a little challenge for y'all. So if you're riding with somebody in the car and you get in these conversations with them, I really just encourage, challenge y'all to think through this stuff. What is your hope in the gospel right now? Let's just pretend hypothetically and heretically, okay, but just pretend. Let's pretend that we take heaven off the, heaven off the plate. What is your, why would you believe the gospel right now? Why is your life different because of the gospel? I'll give you an example from my life. I, Andrea, my wife, after the first service, she thought I was joking. I'm not joking. Okay, so right now I'm in a season of really being pretty materialistic, all right? So what that looks like for me is I don't, I mean, I don't have the money to go out and to buy a ton of big things. So what I do, my materialism is that I will just buy a whole lot of tiny purchases, um, and it feels so good. Like I am into a particular hobby right now, and um, Amazon Prime just makes it so easy. But what I do is for this hobby, I need this little tiny thing. I don't know, five bucks, ten bucks, fifty bucks, I don't know, somewhere in there. But this little tiny thing, and I want it, and it's so easy. I got to one click this, easy. A couple of the first reviews, I looked at gave it five stars. I'm in, done, boom. Two days later, I come home from work and I see that beautiful package with the little black tape around it and the little smiley face on the side. And obviously, I open it up and my dreams are all fulfilled in this tiny box. But then what happens is, um, and this is all true, I open up the box and I realize, you know what, this is really good. I need a couple other things though. So then I go inside and I put the, you know, I put the current toy aside and I go inside and I look. It. what's the what's the next thing that i can buy to make that toy even cooler and to make my hobby even richer and so i find myself every day drawn to amazon prime <laughs> amazon prime it sounds ridiculous to say so and what I'm finding is that I, as I do that, it's not that it's a bad thing to do any of those things, but um, what I have done is the more that I have built practices and habits of just buying stuff without thinking about it, I'm forgetting the fact that my money is meant to be a stewardship and really that it's not my money. Maybe I don't make any different decisions. Maybe I still have the little boxes and that's great, but I have lost the habit of being able to think through, okay, how, is, is this a good thing or not? Get that out. The conscience kind of gets away. So um, what I what I did as I think about how does my how does my present hope in the gospel affect this particular situation I'm dealing with, actually in many ways. So um, uh, as I'm presenting the gospel, if I'm talking to a neighbor and be like, "Oh my gosh, this Amazon Prime thing is totally an idol for me. I'm I'm just I keep buying and buying and buying. I kind of can't stop." So I tell my neighbor, um, "Well, the good thing is." Like I'm, I'm grateful because when I trust Jesus, he forgives me of my sins. So I tend to be the type of person that I feel guilty really, really easily. I feel the weight of guilt. And so now that I have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, I know that I'm released from that guilt. I know also that I do have the power of the Holy Spirit, that I don't have to be defined by this materialism. I know even though it seems so, um, uh, so deeply ingrained in me to continue to buy these little things without thinking about it, I know that there's another way. I know that um, I, I have people to confess to. So like last Monday, I go to my friends who also have been forgiven by Jesus and I go to them and tell them, hey, I'm struggling with some materialistic tendencies right now and they have the ability to rem- remind me of truth of the truth that, hey, you can overcome this. This is fine and you can move past it and they can hold me accountable. And I also know that, you know what? I make a lot of these decisions, not just in materialism, but in any number of areas all the time that I deserve. I'm, I'm guilty, but I know that Christ takes that all away and I will one day live in heaven. So there's all these different ways where you can talk about, you can, you can open yourself up to your neighbors or to your friends or to your coworkers and, and you can just say, this is the present hope that I have in the gospel. You see the difference between that and, um, well, I know that Jesus is going to forgive me of everything, so I just kind of grit my teeth and white knuckle it, and then I'll get through one day. It's just a little bit different message that we're, that we're teaching. Finally, um, heaven, an understanding of heaven, is the foundation of our present hope. One of the things that I'm convinced of is that <clears throat> we sometimes lose the, uh, the ability to hope like, we have the means around us to be able to, as I mentioned earlier, kind of orchestrate our lives, many of us. Um, I can, for the most part, make the right decisions and have the resources to mitigate mitigate any potential dangers or obstacles that are going to come at me. And so I don't need to hope, right? Because my life is set up in such a way that there's no need for hope. I, I have the means to do everything that I need to myself. Obviously, God's still in control, but we many times, I think, lose the ability to hope. And so we ground our thought in heaven. So when I think about um, having a present hope, I look at, uh, I look at First Peter, uh, which is a book that was written to uh, believers who were essentially, they were trying to walk faithfully with Jesus. But you know what? They were really, really, really struggling because there was a lot of bad things that were happening. And so Peter says this, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So what Peter's calling them into is he's calling them to, to remember, you are passing through You are a sojourner. This is not your land. So when you see the world not working out the way it should, that's actually the way it goes on earth. But remember, this is not your home. I remember uh, there's probably been about four or five times in life, uh, in my life, where, where life gets really too much. Um, maybe it's a friend that keeps enduring tragedy, maybe it's some things that uh, was, that that I've encountered through the ministry that I was a part of for so many years. But it's you know you're just kind of plagued sometimes with the "why God, please God, know, all those kind of sentiments, and you sit in your dr- driveway hypothetically and weep like a um, you know like a small child hypothetically again, um, and because uh, there's nothing else to do, so I sit in my truck or I sit in my car and I'm just weeping and I got I got nothing. I can't advocate. I can't love. I can't promote justice. It's all so tiny and insignificant. And so what do I say? I I say, come Lord Jesus. The conclusion of our Bible is come Lord Jesus. We've read about in Revelation that the world is getting really, really bad. It is really, really bad, but there's glimpses of hope in the midst of it. And ultimately there's a beautiful um, ending, which is heaven descending down to earth. And so what does John say? He kind of is, almost seems to be overwhelmed by the difficulties of the world. And he f- ends it with, there's nothing else. Come Lord Jesus. And so for me to think about heaven means that I am, uh, that I am uh, longing for that, that I'm longing, I'm awaiting with creation as we read about in Romans 8 for Christ to come back. And so the situations that are around us that present tremendous difficulty um, are overwhelming, but we long for Christ to return, one of my uh, one of my favorite poets. Why, well, yes, you are going to hear a poem. Uh, one of my favorite poets, uh, Malcolm Geitz, He has a uh, he articulates beautifully what it means for us to walk faithfully with Jesus in a world that uh, uh, that doesn't like him. And so he wrote this poem called Descent, and uh, what he's doing kind of a play on words. What he says is, you know, the descent of Christ, Christ coming down, like we read about in Philippians 2, the descent of Christ is basically God saying, I descent from the world. I move away from, I object to the way the world works. And so the poem is called Descent, and he's talking about the descent of Christ being alternate from the world. He says this, They sought to soar into the skies, those classic gods of high renown. For lofty pride aspires to rise, but you came down. You dropped down from the mountain's sheer, forsook the eagle for the dove. The other gods demanded fear, but you gave love. Where chiseled marble seemed to freeze their abstract and perfected form, compassion brought you to your knees. Your blood was warm. They called for blood and sacrifice, their victims on an altar bled. When no one else could pay the price, you died instead. They towered above our mortal plane, dismissed this restless flesh with scorn, aloof from birth and death and pain. But you were born, born to these burdens, born by all, born with us all astride the grave, weak to be with us when we fall and strong to save What it looks like for us to hope in Christ and hope in the kingdom of heaven is for us to realize that while our king, Jesus, even while he came and lived a holy life and even when he came and he loved radically and even when he advocated for justice and for everybody's ultimate good, even with that, the world hated him because the world had set up patterns and habits uh, that allows it to go on and on um, without God. It's been like that from the beginning, so here Christ comes in and he, ha- he promotes a different way. He says, I'm not gonna rule this world with fear and with terror. He says, I'm gonna rule it through my son sacrificing himself on the cross for the sake of others. So I take tremendous hope in that, in knowing that as long as I walk faithfully with God in Christ, many times the world is not gonna like me. And these conversations actually happen in our house a lot. And you'll find that being anything but self-protective is weird. And you'll find that doing things like loving your enemy is really, really weird. And that people won't understand it and they will be upset with you about it. I, I know this to be true. So I take great hope though in the fact that I'm following Christ and he calls us into those, uh, into those areas. So a couple of points of application for you guys. I already mentioned one. Learn to articulate the gospel, even on the way home, even if you get nothing else out of this. On your way home, I want, to talk, I want you to talk with uh, the person in your car or a roommate or whoever it is. Talk with somebody and try to articulate your present hope. Why do you hope right now? Why is your life changed now because of the gospel? All right? All right. Okay. Secondly, um, I've mentioned this before, but uh, the you know our life in Christ is absolutely full and beautiful and abundant. It's also really, really hard. Um, and if you do this life by yourself, you're going to kind of fail miserably. We're just not wired that way. And so what I would encourage you to do, if you're not involved in a small group of other believers, we have the opportunity to do so. It's a really, really important thing for you to do. There are a lot of opportunities that we have. If y'all look at the tables um, uh, on the outside as you exit, um, there are many, many opportunities for you to get involved. For those of you who are already involved, just if y'all wouldn't mind, take a peek at some of those things because you never know if uh, there's somebody in your uh, in your area or in your job or whatever that wants to know what kind of things we have going on here at grace so just to kind of make yourself familiar with it so and if y'all have any questions please feel free to ask chris and he would be glad to help you y'all bow with me lord jesus thank you so much for grounding us in hope thank you that you are a cornerstone thank you so much that when our um, circumstances seem to be going uh falling apart around us we hope in you (coughs) Thank you, Lord, that uh, you allow us in your absolute grace to live with you forever. And thank you also that as we think about living with you forever, we are changed right now. We pray, Lord, that as we walk from this place, that we would be changed and transformed by something. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, y'all are dismissed.